This morning I'll read Mark 13, 14 through 27. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter in his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning. I remember as we were preparing for the birth of our first child, it was rather eye-opening for me going through the birthing class. I had no idea what was coming, but as the teacher explained all this to me, it was rather interesting, you know, that Jeannie was going to be going through all these increasing labor pains, and we had to look for certain signs. We had to look for these labor pains to get more intense, more regular, and more frequent. When they finally got to be about five minutes apart, then it was time to go to the hospital. But then she would be going through transition and through pushing, and then finally, the birth. Now, I kind of like this birthing class because one of the things the teacher had us do is I pinched Jeannie under her arm for a minute at a time, increasing the pressure, and then letting it off after 30 seconds to simulate labor pain so that she would learn to breathe through the pain. (laughs) I thought this was a brilliant idea. You know, Jeannie didn't think it was so great. (laughs) You had to try that sometime. It hurts, actually. The next pregnancy, we didn't use that particular birth (laughs) method, uh, preparation. So, uh (laughs) oh, man. Of course, the way it happens, after all this preparation and signs and plans for what's coming, uh, Josh didn't follow the plan. (laughs) He ended up in an emergency C-section, which uh, he's been following his own course ever since, (laughs) which is one of his strengths. You know, that's good, good for him. In our passage today, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He has shocked his disciples by telling him that the temple, the foundation of the whole Jewish world and the foundation really for the Christian faith 
this Jewish faith, this Jewish temple was going to be destroyed. And they don't know what to think. The disciples are in shock. If the temple's destroyed, then their whole world as they know it will change. They've asked him about this in verse 4 of chapter 13. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? To prepare them, he's told them already in the first 13 verses we looked at last week, what they are going to go through, what they can expect in the years to come for them and ultimately for us too. But the false Christ would arise, that there would be wars and rumors of wars, that there would be persecution for their faith. But in our passage today, that, those things are, are part of maybe early labor, right? Early pregnancy, labor. But in our passage today, what I believe Jesus is doing is giving a birthing class to the disciples. He says the kingdom is about to be fully birthed when the temple is destroyed, but he gives them those final signs to look for that it's about to come in verses 14 through 27, right before the destruction of the temple. The challenge for us, I think, as we hear and look at this passage is, are we going to be like the disciples and really struggle and resist accepting the kingdom that it's really come, that it really has changed everything? Or are we willing to let go of this world, trust that Jesus really is Lord that we've been singing about this morning and live our lives as citizens, not of this world, but truly as citizens of heaven? That's the tension and that's the challenge as we look at this passage together. Pray with me. Jesus, you are Lord. Father, you have established Jesus as king, ruler, Lord over all the earth. You've given him all authority. And Holy Spirit, you've empowered us as your people, people of the kingdom. May we learn today from your word more what it means to truly live as people of the kingdom the present kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I think I need to say that this is obviously a controversial and difficult passage to interpret. Is this passage about the second coming of Christ and what happens right before he comes? Or is this giving us the signs of the destruction of the temple and that most of this passage really was at least primarily fulfilled in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. As I said last week, I was taught early in my Christian life that this was all about the second coming. It's all future to us. It's what we're looking forward to. But as I've studied it over the years, I've come to see it as primarily fulfilled in those early years, in the first century, though it has, of course, application to us. I want to today really walk through this passage as the disciples would have heard it in that first century. Now, I know many of you will disagree with me because you've been taught differently. Maybe you've studied it on your own. You've been through it. Uh, that's fine. I think that's the one, one of the things I love about Cole. I don't feel a need to convince you necessarily. And at Cole, we believe firmly in the essentials and we are united on the essentials. But 
the secondary issues of which eschatology is one, we differ. And in fact, next week, as Rod finishes this chapter, he will have a little different take on this whole passage, which I think is great. I think it's wonderful that we can look at things from a different perspective and yet still be united in Christ. And I believe God, regardless of your perspective on this passage, God has a powerful message for each of us today. So what I want to do, as I said, is look at this passage as the disciples would have heard it, as first century followers of Jesus Christ. How would they have understood Jesus's words? So Jesus gives the signs of the impending birth of the kingdom, which was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. The first sign he gives us is the abomination of desolation. Verse 14, let me read that again. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in the Judea must flee to the mountains, etc., etc., I love that little phrase in there. Let the reader understand. Understand what? (laughs) It's not that clear, Mark. (laughs) But apparently the disciples would have understood who were reading this in the early years. What would they have understood? Well, Jesus quotes this phrase, this odd phrase, abomination of desolation. It occurs in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9 chapter 11 and chapter 12, where it's given in the prophecies, apocalyptic prophecies there. Now, most Jews of the first century, including the disciples, I believe, would have understood that that prophecy of Daniel would have been fulfilled in BC 167, when the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes took the city of Jerusalem slaughtered 80,000 Jews, took another 80,000 or so as slaves, took the temple, and in the temple, he set up a statue to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, the Jews saw that period as the abomination of desolation, the exact fulfillment of Daniel, which really fits when you study Daniel, that that was at least the primary first fulfillment of this whole prophecy about the abomination of desolation. So when Jesus mentions that, uses that phrase, the disciple would know that Jesus is saying, oh, I know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something's going to happen to desecrate the temple, to make a mess of the physical temple. Just before the temple was destroyed, In A.D. 70, when the Jews rebelled against the Romans and the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem for essentially four years until finally they broke through. During that siege, the Jewish zealots who were fighting the Romans, who had stirred up this fight, stopped the sacrifices, stopped the temple worship, set up their own high priest and essentially desecrated the temple. And then Titus, the Roman general, when he came, he also desecrated the temple and destroyed it. So somewhere in that process, I think what Jesus is telling the disciples is when you see all this begin to happen, it's time to get out of town. (laughs) 
When it began to happen in AD 66 and following, get out of town in a hurry. Like it got corrupted in AD in 167 BC in AD 70 when it happens, run for cover. Now let me just say this is part of my confusion when I think about it as the second coming. Um, if this was referring to the second coming, the second return of Christ, the temple would have to be rebuilt, right? There's no temple now. Well, I believe, as I said last week, Jesus has not allowed the temple to be rebuilt, even though many want to rebuild it, because Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus, God doesn't want any more sacrifices. He doesn't want the temple there. And so I get confused if I try to make this the second coming. Now, I will be, I for one will be surprised if God allows the temple to be rebuilt. But I've been surprised before. Okay, so I could be wrong. But that's just my take on this. So the abomination of desolation is the first sign. When you see the temple be desecrated, it's time to flee. The second sign, he says, of the final stages of labor, when the kingdom's about to be born, when the temple's about to be destroyed, is devastating tribulation. Verse 14 through 20. Let me just read 14 through 17, where he says this abomination of des desolation. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Jesus says it's going to be bad. And when you see this happening in the city surrounded and you see the armies coming, it's time to flee. Don't stay to defend the city or the temple because God has a plan for its destruction. I believe that the disciples would have felt like they should join in with the rest of the Jews and say, we got to protect this. This is the center of God's presence on earth, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. We should stay and fight the Romans. And wait for a miracle of God to save us. But Jesus is saying, no, don't stay and fight for the city or stay to protect the temple. It's time to flee because I have a plan for its destruction. And I want you to go elsewhere. And, and we have record, historical record, that many of the Christians did leave the city at this time. Because they believe God told them to. So in verse 18 and 19, it explains more about this terrible, terrible tribulation. But pray that it may not happen in winter. For those will be a time, those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of a creation which God created until now and never will. Now, obviously, that creates a struggle. What, what is he talking about? If it, if it was fulfilled in AD 70, then uh, what does he mean that it was the worst tribulation before or since? Well, let me read something from uh, Brian Morgan, pastor friend. Many scholars have been disturbed by this saying. How could the tribulation of AD 70 compare to the horror of the Holocaust when six million Jews died in Nazi death camps? How could it compare to the death of 20 million people under Stalin or the utter destruction of Hiroshima by the atomic bomb? 
The tension can be addressed in one of two ways. Either Jesus was speaking in hyperbole to make his point, or, as D.A. Carson says, there have been greater numbers of death, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population as thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. We are told by the historian Josephus that millions were in the city. They'd gathered for Passover, and so when the Romans came and besieged the city, it was a horrible, horrible time. Over a million were killed, many were enslaved, etc. The most horrific scene, one that's described by Josephus, involved that of a young mother killing and roasting her own son. Josephus wrote that when several starving men smelled the cooking of meat, they rushed upon the woman and demanded to see the food she was hiding. She replied, this is my own son. And what's been done was my own doing. Come, eat of this food, for I've eaten it myself. But don't pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than a mother. But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this, my sacrifice, as I have eaten one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. And overcome with horror, the men staggered out, Josephus tells us, trembling at what they had seen. That was just one scene of what was going on in Jerusalem in those days. It was a horrible, horrible time. The Romans ended up taking many of the Jews and crucifying them along the Roman roads. Thousands and thousands. Josephus tells us that the area around Jerusalem was denuded of trees because they were all being used to make crosses to kill and crucify the Jews. It was a horrible time. But, but here's what I think of why it was the worst tribulation ever in history before or since. It's because it was the final end of the Jewish state and the Jewish temple, the whole Jewish religious system. It was a devastating end to the Jews as God's chosen people, their place in the land. They've been scattered ever since. I, I know they're back in the land now since 1948, but that's a secular state. But I believe what Jesus is describing, the reason it was so devastating, is the psychological devastation was greater even than the physical devastation in those years when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Now, let me say, just because I think it's important to say, is that God still loves the Jews. <laughs> he still has a plan for the Jews. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 9 through 11 that there's still a plan. And the end of chapter 11, he says, God has a plan and thus all Israel will be saved. He has a plan to save the nation of Israel, that there'll be a great turning at some point in history. And we're looking and praying for that even now. But it says in verse 20 that this is so great. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The Roman soldiers were told were so angry, they were ignoring even their own commanders and they were slaughtering Jews and infants and mothers, destroying everything they could because they were so furious at the Jews. But at some point, it says that God shortened those days. So Jesus tells his disciples, expect devastating tribulation. So it's time to leave. This city is set up for judgment. 
And then verse 21 through 23 says the last sign of the impending birth, the last of the labor pains is going to be these false Christs. If anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ. Behold, he's there. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders, etc. Historians tell us that there were many in those days during the siege of Jerusalem claiming to do miracles, claiming to gather people around them to fight the Romans. Everyone was looking for God to do miracles and some were claiming they could do it. In fact, the zealots themselves, the leaders of this rebellion against Rome, because there were so many people in the city and some were fighting, some weren't. The zealots destroyed much of the food stores themselves. They wanted to force God's hand. God, you got to save your people now and we're, we don't even have food to eat now. So you better show up, God. Well, he showed up. But not like they had hoped. They were thinking that God would show up like he did in Hezekiah's day when 180 thousand Assyrians were killed or in Jehoshaphat's day somehow to wipe out the opposing army laying siege to Jerusalem. But Jesus's words were these. It's not time to fight for your culture. It's not time to fight for your city. It's not time to fight for your temple. A new age is beginning. There's the birth of the church, the birth of the new people of God. And there must be a break from the old. A new birth is happening, so don't fight for the old culture. And then I think he goes on in verse 24 through 27 to say what this new kingdom looks like. He gives a couple of characteristics to it, this birth of a new kingdom. And let me read those again because I think they're key phrases he uses. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus uses graphic imagery here to describe the coming of the new kingdom. It will be the end of life as you know it. Now, I agree. This sounds like, wow, this is the end of the world, right? (laughs) It sure sounds that way. But Jesus is quoting directly from the prophets in the Old Testament, from Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Joel chapters 2 and 3. And if you look at those chapters carefully where those phrases are used, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. In those contexts, the prophets are declaring judgment on Babylon, on Egypt, and ultimately on Israel itself. These judgments that happened in history, they weren't the end of the world. They were actual judgments. But the but the prophets used this extreme graphic language to describe your life will end as you know it. And so Jesus picks up that same terminology now for the disciples and says the Jewish life, as you know, as you know, it will end. There's a dramatic change. God is stepping in to bring judgment None of these passages in the Old Testament refer specifically to the second coming. And then in verse 26, this phrase that sounds again like the second coming of Jesus. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Well, that sounds like the second coming, right? Except the quote, the direct quote is from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7... 
if you read it carefully, in fact, let me read verses 13 and 14 in Daniel 7, because I think you need to hear it and understand what it's saying. It says this, I kept looking into the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Do you hear that? The, this phrase that's this coming of the Son of Man is the coming to sit at the right hand of the Father, not coming to earth. It's a description of the ascension after the resurrection. Jesus taking his throne in heaven and being seated as the king over all the heavens and the earth. That's what Daniel 7 is about. And Jesus is saying, yeah, and this is really the sign of the kingdom. Come the end of the new birth. The new birth is that Jesus now is Lord today, not some far off time in the future when he returns. He's Lord now. He reigns as king now. You see, I think that's the message that Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples. That he now reigns. I believe this is how the disciples would have heard this verse because they knew Daniel 7 and they understood it was Jesus being established as king. Remember in Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where he is about to be stoned and he, and he recounts this whole story of, of Israel and how God was working right up to bringing Messiah, Jesus. And he, and he says right before he's stoned, and the heavens were opened and I saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. See, the early church believed Jesus was there. Daniel 7 had come true. Jesus was reigning at the right hand of the Father. And then the Jews stoned him for saying that. So the setting up of the kingdom involves this whole period of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And then the final phase is this destruction of the temple because that had to be wiped out so that this new kingdom could be fully established and the disciples would let go of the old ways and the old patterns. So they wouldn't look for the presence of God in a building, but rather in the people of God, the new kingdom on earth. The final mark of this birth of this new kingdom it's not just Jesus's lordship, but in verse 27, then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. You see, I think he's talking about this fulfillment of the prophecy to, Dan to Abraham, right? Way back in chapter 12 of Genesis, where, where he was told, that you will be a blessing to all the nations. Now, finally, the Gentiles, all the nations are being gathered in. As soon as Jesus rose, the temple was destroyed. The gospel has gone forth to all the nations. And the book of Acts really is a commentary on this verse, right? Because what is the book of Acts about? It's about the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, going to Samaria and going to the other ends of the earth. That is what is happening now. It's not a future thing. It's happening now. The gospel is going forth. And so the whole book of Acts and the history of missions is a fulfillment of this very verse. Beginning from Pentecost, remember, when the Spirit was poured out and, and all these different nations heard the gospel in their own words. Now, let me say, 
Part of what we live with as believers today is this tension between the kingdom being already here and yet not yet. You know that tension, right? The kingdom's here already, but it's not yet. Jesus is Lord today, but it's in many ways an invisible kingdom. And so we look forward to when he reigns fully physically on this new heavens and the new earth. But let me just say, sometimes I think our theologies make us focus on one or the other. And some theologies make us think, well, it's mostly future. And so we're just biding our time here. And we're just waiting for Jesus to come and set up his kingdom. I I think that can be a dangerous theology because it makes us passive. I believe the early church believed much more. They emphasized much more than we tend to that the kingdom's already here, that Jesus is Lord today, that the kingdom's come and we need to be living fully as citizens of this new kingdom. Just listen to a couple of phrases. Acts chapter two is Peter gives his um, speech to the Jews at Pentecost. Verse 32 and following, listen to what what, uh, Peter says. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. Pentecost. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my right hand, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is Lord. He is established at the right hand of God, the early church believed, and they really taught that. And therefore, they lived fully for this new kingdom. So how can we apply this to us today? If this is mainly fulfilled in the first century, what what are the implications for us today? Well, like the disciples, I think we're being called to give up all for the kingdom of God, to live fully for this new kingdom to see ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God, not so much citizens of this world. And like Jesus told the disciples to flee and don't turn back. <laughs> I think he, it's an encouragement to us, it certainly is to me, that to look at how God is working in our world. When human societies throughout history, this has been the case, and it certainly was true for Israel, When human societies refuse to bow to Jesus as Lord and exalt him as Lord, God's judgment is coming upon them. It's happened over and over in history. And I think we need to recognize that, that our culture, our American culture is moving further and further from God. And God's hand of judgment is coming, I believe, because that's God's truth. That's God's. Pattern. And I'm concerned about believers today who somehow hold on to, to our culture more than they hold on to the kingdom of God. Like for the disciples, it's a temptation to have our faith tied up in nationalism, faith in our country, 
God and country, that kind of thinking. But I believe the message for us is don't hold on to the worldly systems, our worldly culture. They will pass. God is going to bring judgment on America at some point. Don't fight to save our culture, but rather live for the kingdom of God. Larry Crabb in his book, Men of Courage, says this. In Christian circles, optimism typically is built on the idea that God's central purpose is to bless us with the kind of life we want or to transform culture into a friendlier environment for Christians. Counselors specialize in solving our problems and relieving our pain. Christian leaders tell us that our prayers, activism, and united influence will turn our nation around and usher in a godly society. Both groups may be guilty of distracting us from the real call of God. It is our individual lives and our Christian communities that must turn around. We must learn to continue serving Christ when problems come and to draw closer to Christ in the middle of unrelieved suffering. I believe that's the message Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and also to us. We're citizens of heaven, not of this world. Third, I think we can learn from this to not fear persecution, but rather see it as an opportunity for the gospel to spread. And, of course, the book of Acts is all about that, where the persecution the early church experienced led to the scattering of the disciples, to the spread of the gospel throughout all the known world. Fourth, let's remember that Jesus is on his throne now. He's Lord over all nations. We can follow him and trust him. Let's live for him. He's gathering his people and expanding his kingdom over all the earth today. I love hearing all the stories that are coming of people who are coming to Christ. The, the church is expanding exponentially in South America, in Africa, in many parts of the Muslim world. Muslims are coming to Christ through dreams, through sharing of the gospel, through all kinds of ways. It's amazing to see how God is working and expanding his kingdom. It's happening today. So like the disciples, let's proclaim it and let's live for the kingdom of God. You see, our call, brothers and sisters, is to follow Jesus as Lord and to participate in spreading the kingdom, sharing our faith as Jesus works to continue gathering his people from the four winds the four corners of the earth, until he comes again. Come, Lord Jesus, to finally, ultimately bring in the consummation of the kingdom and set all things right. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this challenge to us to not get caught up in this world too much but to really see that your kingdom has come and to live for that kingdom, the kingdom that's growing and expanding where you are, Lord. May you give us eyes to see how you are working in our lives and in our world to expand that kingdom. And we, may we be full participants in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.